Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Josh Levy, co-founder of Document Crunch. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Hugh. Yeah, Josh, so I'd love to start with what got you to Document Crunch. What in your own experience as a lawyer um, made you see the need, but then really develop it into something? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's so funny too, because the feedback we often get, um, you know, as we've been on this journey is that uh, tech companies, you know, coming into the construction space are really just that, right? Tech entrepreneurs looking to break into this massive industry, Um, But these techies don't necessarily have an appreciation for the industry itself and all the day-to-day pain points for construction operations. So products can appear a bit tone deaf or disconnected, whatever. And I think what differentiates us is I'm not really a tech guy. I'm just a construction guy. I'm not a software expert or anything like that. And I think our story to that end is kind of an interesting one. So thanks. Um, So I was a construction management major from the University of Florida. And I realized that I loved the industry, but I just didn't want to be a project manager after doing a bunch of uh, big internships. So I went to law school and decided that was going to be how I tried to enter the construction industry. And my first job was actually clerking for um, arguably the best construction law firm that there is. And I was in Miami, Florida, my hometown. And um, I was clerking for a young partner at the time, my first summer, named Adam Handfinger. Um, aside from having one of the more unique last names ever, Adam is actually an important name to remember because he happens to be the other co-founder of Document Crunch. So Adam taught me much of what I knew about construction law. And uh, I not only clerked for him, I ended up working for his law firm. And he's not such a young partner anymore. He's the managing partner of that of that Miami office now. And um, about six years ago, I left private practice to go in-house uh, with a top ENR contractor, uh, they're in the top fifty, and I was really excited about this transition. Um, and in that role, I ended up ascending to to lead the legal department of of their regional business unit in the southeast, about a billion dollar a year um, business unit. And um, in that role, I got very overwhelmed by various kind of pain points that I was having as being the the head lawyer. So you know, kind of the areas that I would think about would be all the contracts that I had to review uh, to help submit bid qualifications for our industry. Then I would pick up the same contract upon award and I would then go and have to review it and negotiate it. Um, And then finally, I'd pick up that contract a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time because inevitably after I negotiated the contract, usually with a high level executive of my company, some project manager would be in my office six, seven, eight months later saying, hey, Josh, something happened on site. What does our contract say? And I felt like Siri for contracts. I was looking at the same issues, you know, at three different phases for this construction company. And it was the very same issues that I'd learned about way back when, when I was clerking. So same issues in every contract, same issues that every contractor, you know, cares about. And you're seeing those contracts from, I mean, first as a clerk from one direction and then from the the kind of the client side from another or... From multiple directions? Yeah, from multiple directions. And really just uh, because of the, the firm I was working for, it was such a such a preeminent firm representing contractors. I mean, I'd worked for so many of the top ENR contractors and understood what their you know preferences and pain points were. And they're by and large similar across the board. Yeah, I mean, they're all covering a lot of the same activity, right? In the, in the same legal environment. So it would make sense that things would come up more or less the same unless there's some strategic reason a company does things a different way, right? 
That's right. The same business terms and the same legal terms are by and large an issue across really every construction contract when, when you're talking about especially commercial construction. What, and what's an example of some things that, that, that people would recognize that come up over and over again? Waivers of consequential damages, right? So tell what, me what how, that means. Tell me what's, what waiver of consequential damage means for the tech, techies in the room. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the best example is if I'm building you a hotel and I install your windows defectively, the direct damage would be the cost to, um, you know, reinstall the window and maybe, you know, uh, remediate some of the carpet that may be damaged if I installed the window inappropriately and rain got in the, the, the hotel. The consequential damage and what contractors by and large don't want to be exposed to, but which is allowed if you don't contract out of it, would be the hotel had to shut that room down and lost $10,000 in room revenue. Wow. So that's like almost like tort reform, right? Like there's no end. I don't want to confuse things by throwing that word in there, but there's, there's, there's potentially no cap, right? Because it could be whatever they say it is. Exactly right. So generally speaking, general contractors in the U.S. don't want to expose themselves to that category of damages, which is the unique business damages of an owner. Those are consequential damages. And so what you're seeing over and over again is, is how that waiver gets, gets put together and, and how you make it palatable to the owner kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. So just you know, getting the right term to protect the contractor that's otherwise considered market, et cetera. I'll use a business term so I don't term so I don't bore everybody with legalese only, but you know, the concept of like contingency and what permitted uses of contingency would be, you know, kind of another important heavily negotiated contractual issue, right? Um, the rights for relief if there's a delay, right? Do you get just time relief? Do you get paid your extended general conditions if you have a delay? So these are like, you know, these are these are core contract type of issues that every contractor. I mean, I can't say everyone, but by and large, our industry all uniformly recognizes is very important in their contracts. And I mean, the, the behind the scenes of this is that the risks of being a day late on a big hotel are enormous. And same, same is true for a, a company that's using, a, you know, an office for its, for its people is that each, each day or month or whatever, you know, they, they reasonably are going to lose a fair amount of money. So the, 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 the kind of sums under you know, that you're thinking about can be a lot. That's exactly right. And, and so, and again, like the, 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 the redundancy of those issues on every single project across every single company, you know, is kind of one dot I started connecting. Right. So what that then, lead you to? Yeah. So, you know, similar to that. So I became very overwhelmed. And what I did was I hired uh, Adam, my old boss and mentor and whatever you want to call him, who I'd stayed very close with. I hired him and his team to start, start supporting me, especially with bid qualifications. And I, you know, I am a millennial and I left private practice in part because I did not love the billable hour. And I started challenging Adam and his team to provide to me kind of lump sum or fixed price pricing on those exercises. And as probably anyone listening here knows, lawyers tend to like to bill by the hour. So I, Adam started getting very concerned about becoming more efficient and giving me that price certainty. And I became um, very concerned with how was I just going to ma manage all of these different touch points working in a big construction organization and reviewing contracts and advising operations every single day. So go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's okay. So what I was going to say is what you're, you're talking about is, is what, you're, what we are seeing across different companies for sure, but construction specifically is people are starting to identify the things they do over and over again. 
and say, how can we automate some of this or, or make it at least more efficient? Um, so you, you started to say that, right? Is, is how can we either at least make this into such a tight process, it may as well be automated. That's exactly right. And at that time, I was being very self-centered. <laughs> and, and, and I say that because, so, so Adam and I started reading about how artificial intelligence was being used in other industries and other use cases to speed up document review. And so we just set out as two consumers, me and my role as in-house lawyer, him and his role as needing to manage millennial clients like me with fixed pricing. Um, we just set out to go find an AI tool to help make us more efficient in our own jobs, to your point. And what we quickly realized a couple of years ago when we set out was, A, there was nothing for the construction industry, uh-huh. which blew our mind because we just talked a little bit about this, but the construction industry does have, well, while they're redundant across every project, the construction industry has very unique legal and business type issues. That right. in so it blew our mind that this massive industry didn't have anything. And also there was just nothing that was very bespoke. And that kind of answered the second question that I get asked. So the first question is, what am I looking for in the in a contract, okay, so find the issue. The second question is, well, why do I care? There was no tool out there that really helped you know, contextualize why the issues that it was spotting was important. So we were floored for our own uses that that didn't exist. But what really drove us to found Document Grudge was when I sat back and said, putting Josh's little self-centered problem aside, our industry actually has a massive dilemma when it comes to managing contracts and other document risks. And you know, the industry recognizes that those risks are very real and can torpedo a company. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like me have had jobs my whole career. But the industry is addressing these big risks in one of two ways currently before we found a document crunch, both of which were totally inefficient as far as I'm concerned. The first way that companies address this, I'll call them the over-investors. Those were companies like the company that I was working for. They're usually large companies and they spend a ton of money throwing overhead functions like lawyers, risk managers, et cetera, you know, at, at helping manage risks in these documents. The superficial reason for why that's not efficient is because that's overhead, which grows as the business grows. And you know, we're not exactly working in a in, a, in an industry where profits are going up. So adding more overhead is generally not an accepted way to you know, help, help solve that issue, right? Um, the, more, the less superficial you know, reason why the over-investors struggle with this is when you have a bunch of guys like me sitting kind of in the ivory tower of these construction companies that are subject matter experts and understand these types of risks, it gets really hard to democratize that subject matter expertise out to the people who need it in the field. Hmm. Going back to that project manager who was always in my office asking me, what happened? What does our contract say? And what's perhaps even more corrosive is when you have these overhead functions that the whole organization relies upon, it kind of numbs the people in the field and others that need that information because they can't do anything without going to people like me and asking them for help. That's an interesting one. I want to talk about that for a sec. Um, in, in fact, you and I met on a uh, Construction Progress Coalition um, uh, webinar thing where you were talking about, as a kind of a legal expert, about um, reality capture. And, and in that, forgetting for a moment about the specifics of that conversation, one of the things that struck me is because there's a general sense of risk and a general sense of complex legal documents somewhere in some room somewhere, 
I think it makes people default to not do certain things because they just don't know. And it's painful to go and ask. So it's like, well, then let's just play it safe. And that, that almost inevitably means slower and less efficiently. So I think there's a, there's a, you know, a, a bigger, a big issue that you guys are addressing. And that is this distance between, or that are kind of a, almost a bifurcation There's one group that kind of gets this, but they're not, you know, in the field doing things. And the folks in the field have a, have a, have a, a sense of it being, you know, generally bad and difficult and dangerous, but not sure what to do about it. Is that something that's, you've seen? That's exactly the sentiment that I'm describing, which I call corrosive, right? Um, that's, that's what's happening. And it's so interesting because this is an industry where a lot of the people at the top of the organization, they grew up in a little bit of a less complex industry right. where everybody on the job site did a page turn of the contract and understood every risk that was in there, right? But now, and didn't, and didn't have a bunch of suits like me to rely upon, um, you know, to answer every single question, essentially Siri for contracts in-house, right? And Josh, did uh, that, just a quick question, did that change? Was there a moment when that changed or is that just the accumulation of regulations and, and experience over, no, over the course of 20 or so years? You know, what I think, Hugh, is that construction con projects have become more complex. And I think probably the biggest reason for that change has been, you know, with all of with the proliferation of email and all the data and, and communication and correspondence that happens every day. I think that people just don't have the time to, to absorb, you know, everything that's on their plates. But and have the underlying documents gotten harder, do you think, in the last 20, 30 well, years? Yeah. I don't know about harder, but they're certainly not getting shorter. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah, they're, yes, as different project deliveries are coming online, as, you know, developers and owners are becoming more sophisticated, institutional builders, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, that was part of, you know, that was part of, I guess, that, that's the other side of the conundrum, right? So profits are going down and projects and contracts are actually getting more complex. So overhead's not ideal, but taking on risk isn't ideal on the other hand, right? Going to the complexity side. So that is part of the, the issue. Absolutely. Cool. So I, I stopped uh, you from something else. No. So, I mean, those are the over-investors, right? So they throw a bunch of resources at this and all of those kind of factors that I just went through emerge. That's, that's interesting. And that was one part of the big dilemma. But what really struck me was actually the under-investors. So I want to say I read a stat recently. I think like 80% of our industry, this massive industry, which is construction, is made up of small to mid-cap companies, not large contractors or subcontractors. 80%. Those are the people, by and large, who I'll call the under-investors. Those people don't have overhead functions in place to hire guys like me to be Siri for contracts. Yeah. And they certainly don't want to pay my co-founder, Adam, $600 an hour to review every piece of paper that come up across their, their plate. So they are taking on risks every single day or, or, and or relying upon underqualified or overburdened personnel to tell them what those risks may be. And those are people that, in my opinion, are playing Russian roulette. They're one bad contract turn away from potentially going out of business. I mean, it can be that catastrophic at times. And those people just don't see that they have a viable option to deal with this risk, right? Which they know exists because the industry has seen just time and again how risky it can be. So you've got these over-investors and you've got these under-investors. And I don't think either of them are, are uh, the appropriate way to deal with this big dilemma. But again, you've got diminishing profits. So adding, adding overhead is a problem. And you've got more complex 
projects, so you can't ignore the risks. So in response to that, that's why we founded Document Crunch. It wasn't really just about my problem, which we certainly solved by, by founding Document Crunch, but it was really the bigger dilemma that we were trying to solve for. So at bottom, we've created AI software, which used natural language processing. And we've really helped, you know, now anybody in the industry can upload a document and in a matter of moments, we'll tell that end user, A, what the issues that they should that they should know about are in that agreement or that or that insurance policy or in those plans and specs, whatever. And B, the second question that I talked about that I get asked all the time is why that issue is important. And we believe that by giving end users the answers to those first two questions using our technology, we are empowering operators, non-lawyers, whoever, executives, even lawyers, but we are empowering anybody who's a user to get to the third question, which is, okay, now what do I do? Right. Which, which at bottom is all I do in my core role, you know, in my career anyway, right? I'm not necessarily the decision maker, but I give operations or executives the feedback that they need, right? What's the issue? Why is this important? To make an informed business decision. And we think that that's the magic of our tool. We're using technology to answer those first two questions, empowering those end users to make informed decisions without having to incur all the traditional overhead or rely on all the traditional overhead or in the underinvestor's case, not be able to make informed decisions. So you guys are like translator from contract ease into kind of regular management speak and not even management speak, just sort of human speak. Is that, I mean, it sounds like you're, 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 as I say, translating these, these clauses and these pieces of a contract into just straight language that people can really, really manage and do something with. Well, yes. I mean, that's the second step, but I think the first step is we're finding the issues, right? Right. We're notifying them of what they, what they should be looking for. And then, and, and then we're telling them why, what we found could be considered important to them. That's not that's not to say that we're going to replace their lawyers or their decision makers. We're not telling them whether the provision is good or bad, they should sign it or not. We're just saying you should know that this is in your contract and you should know that generally speaking, this is why that's an important issue to you. That makes sense. So so do you think that you get to a place where within a given contract there's, you know, some percentage of it, some high percentage of it you're reviewing with them, and then there's some where, where that may be very specific, or might be. I mean, that's what they're they're still going to want to have a, a, a retain a lawyer that they're they're talking to for things that are that you just can't build a tool for because the world is full of. I mean, it's a software story, right? Is there's always edge cases, stuff you can't include in any given product. A- absolutely, and you know we we consider that when creating this. I mean, you know, I'm not one to say whether I I, I do not believe that this is a replacement for lawyers or again decision makers. Um, and I do encourage that everyone still read the document. But something very magical happens when you deconstruct totally. it. Totally, oh, totally. To to find what's commonly considered the big issues, and I'll just tell you how I use it. Right, I don't need anybody to tell me. I don't need anybody to tell me why the issues are important. I mean, I'm the one who programmed the software to tell everybody else that, right? It's kind of my, it's in my head. But, but I use this all the time to, okay, great. I now have quickly understood what are the important issues in this contract. Now let me put a high-level review on the rest of the contract. And to your point, make sure I didn't miss anything else. Make sure the software didn't miss anything else. It's not perfect. It's not, there are edge cases. You're 100% right there. But, it, but that 
greatly speeds up even my review. And I, you know, I do consider myself a subject matter. Uh, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't use the word expert, but you're good at I, it. <laughs> I, I understand the construction contracts at a high level, but imagine now somebody who doesn't and how much more power this gives that person. It reminds me a little bit of um, things like taxes, things that, that, that feel like they're hard until you get into them. And what you're, what you're talking about is demystifying it so you, people can feel their own kind of self-efficacy almost, right? It's like you can feel competent to go and read this thing. Yeah, you want a lawyer to make sure that you didn't miss things and so on and so forth. But you, this allows people to be somewhat competent to read the document and at least know the, 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 the landscape, know what's, what's involved. And, and they may need some help with, with specifics in there and should I go left or go right, but they understand the question a lot better than they otherwise would. And they're not just hoping that the lawyer you know, is, is doing their job well. You, you just nailed it. And that was what was eating me up in my role when I was in-house at this large contractor. I was coming across super bright people, project managers, project executives, vice presidents of pre-construction, you know, VPs, whatever it is. I was coming across super bright people that were more than competent and capable to actually do this, but they were so intimidated right. by the thought of doing it that I was their wet blanket. And that's how I became Siri for contracts. Yeah. And I was it was driving me nuts that I would be continuing to do the you know, what I was perceiving at that point to be lo- kind of lower level work of just regurgitating information to somebody who was otherwise capable of doing it. They just needed that confidence. It's funny. The, the, the reason I'm resonating with this or this, this message is resonating with me so much is I literally wrote a book that is some of the same idea. And that is in the, you know, for someone who spent 20 or 30 years in the field, they're not spending their time thinking about what an API is or what, how software works. So they're not necessarily going to ask, you know, how does this work or, or how should I think about it? As opposed to someone who's younger where maybe that's the case. But nevertheless, they bring so much knowledge of, of construction and of processes and of how things really work. But if there is some, a, a barrier of, of, of self, I keep using the word self-efficacy, but the sense that I'm competent to make this decision if there's a barrier of that sense of competence, it's an artificial one, uh, and it's one that's relatively easy, easily overcome. And again, I wrote a book for that purpose, and it's not it's not the same as what you're doing in, in the specifics, but generally, it, it it's it really does. It, it is one of the things we're trying to do for the industry, right? Is empower people who are are making a shift from one um, kind of one mode of operation to another one. And in your case, you're you're trying to empower folks in the field to come closer to what the terms of the job they're working on is so they can feel more confident and move potentially move more quickly and more confidently, especially when issues arrive, arise. But even when that's not the case, they, they, they know the rules that they're playing within much more comfortably. You're right. This is a story of empowerment. And I can tell you what you just talked about, that confidence. I always say, what, what, what is a, a construction company's best day in the courtroom? <laughs> Do you know? No, what is it? It's it's when the project manager wins the discussion in the project trailer because they're confident and they're competent and they understand and they can leverage successful outcomes based on that preparation and confidence. That's the best day in the courtroom. And 
and empowering people to then freeing them up to be able to, to, to come to those, you know, to, to own and be accountable for the contract is, is in my opinion, the secret sauce that we're striving toward. I love that. So talk to me about, about the, the, the reality of, of the contract landscape. Do you have different versions of the product that work for a sub, that work for a GC, that work for someone else, or is it all kind of in one, baked into one thing? Well, we've got some various nuances that we'll continue refining over time. But the, 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 the basic tool that we launched a year ago is meant to really apply to, to different construction, to all different construction contracts. Got it. You know, but there are some issues that, you know, we look for in every contract that may be more unique to a sub or, you know, not as important on, you know, in a, in a design build job versus a typical CM at risk. So there's definitely, you know, over time we'll further refine the products. Yeah. That's really but the, right. I mean, yeah. But the, but the basic tool essentially finds the risk that most people would care about in any, and business terms that most people would care about no matter what delivery no matter if they were a subcontract, subcontractor or a general contractor, et cetera. That's great. Um, so what are some stories of, of you, you mentioned, you used the word magic before, which I love. Tell me a little bit about how you've seen people use the thing. And, and, and we've kind of covered the, the, almost the emotional side of it. But how, what are some examples of how people are using this um, in terms of projects and, and just the, the reality of someone using it? Yeah, so I mean, you've got everyone using it from, you know, uh, legal departments all the way down. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I won't, I won't necessarily call out the companies, but no, if, you no, go on our, if you, if you go on our websites, there's some great testimonials, but, um, you know, document crunch enables us to quickly identify risks and evaluate the need for outside counsel and flag requirements for our project teams to track throughout their projects you know, that's a senior vice president, non-lawyer at a company. It assists in making go-no-go decisions before bidding jobs. You know, another another uh, chief legal officer of another company said, you know, we've been able to work with Document Crunch to customize the use of the platform, you know, for their own uses. And we place great value in, 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 in this technology. It's a game changer. Um, you've, got a, you've got a contract admin at a small roofing company in Florida say... Uh, and I'm just looking on our website here, say, you know, this is the first, contracts are super intimidating. This is the tool that I use before I even open a contract now. Um, so there's just all different use cases depending I mean, on so persona. It's yeah, so it's a tool that's that's high-powered enough that real lawyers use it. And that's kind of how you started the story. But but in practice, legal teams are using it. But it's useful enough that, that you know, somebody who's running a team can use it. So it's, it's intuitive enough that, that you don't need to be a lawyer to use it, but it's got enough juice that, that lawyers use it. That's cool. So this is, this is what I say, Hugh, to that. Yeah. I mean, and yes, to answer your question, yes, plenty of legal departments at Top and our contractors are using us. And, 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 and frankly, because of who we are and how we started, that's you know who our earliest adopters were. And those folks are giving us great feedback and I, I analogize it to it's like giving those folks a calculator to do their, their work. <laughs> yeah, their work. I love that. But, but I will tell you the less sophisticated the end user, going back to the over-investor and under-investor, and this has to do with personas as well. Yeah. For the people that are not those lawyers that are using getting a calculator, this is like giving a flashlight to people living in a cave on, with some users. And so the value proposition goes 
up, the less sophisticated the end user. Yeah, I, I did an analysis uh, for the first construction technology quarterly about just from BLS data about size of companies in the industry. And it's some crazy number like 90, I forgot what, I don't have it in front of me, but um, something, something approaching 90 or over 90% are below 50 people. Um, like, like, so it's just, it's absolutely loaded with people that, that don't have the ability to, um, you know, have overhead or, or, or have a lawyer on every job. Um, so this is, this is pretty awesome stuff. So talk to you about where you see this going in the future, including how you think it might change people's behavior on the job or in the industry. Yeah. So, I mean, I look, I think that, you know, there's a little bit of a cultural shift that's taking place. And I think this is a part of that, but, um, you know, our goal is to hopefully be a life safer for most of the industry. Like you were just describing mm-hmm. those small big cap companies. Our goal is also to continue to partner with the really big users and continue automating their processes and making them more efficient at their jobs. Um, my hope is that over time, this will allow our industry to really level up um, in terms of their approach to risk management and contracts and other project document reviews. And I think that, you know, kind of the next evolution of this over time will be as we gain more and more traction in the marketplaces, all the big data insights that we can gain. You know, whether you're an insurance company who wants to benchmark how contract terms may tie to risk or, you know, we've got a new integration uh, that we're launching with Consensus Docs, the the contract template provider. Mm -hmm. I know they're very interested in looking at tools like this to help help understand what's truly market, right? How are contracts being negotiated? What, What terms should change based on the actual market realities? So there's just all kinds of big data uses that I see this helping solve in our industry as well, which will ultimately help, you know, save the company money, time, et cetera. Well, I, I just, uh, two things I'd say. One is um, if it feels like it, it, you know, your ability to demystify and empower people um, to read a document means that a new document type will find ready, readier acceptance. So which makes the entire ecosystem potentially more flexible as new as new project types come come about and as new terms are are you know relevant based on different things going on in the market um which i think is super exciting that's why when you said consensus docs i was like well i could see how they would find that on from a, a number of levels um you guys have an amazing on, on your website there's a video that i just would love for, i would encourage people to go check out so that specifically there's one that says like why what we do and the other one is how we do it which is which i thought was pretty smart um, how do people find you and, and how do they learn more other than obviously the videos I just mentioned, but where do they go to find this? Yeah. I mean, we're pretty active on social media, so you can definitely find us on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and all that. I mean, our website's uh, www.documentcrunch.com. And, um, you know, please reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to anybody. I mean, we, you know, it's interesting. I don't know that I don't know that this fits in the mold of the traditional software companies, but we are, we, we were founded by two lawyers whose whole business career life, you know, lifespan has been being excellent service providers. So, you know, one of the just core attributes of who we are and what we're doing is we want to be highly responsive and transparent and communicative and just really help solve our users problems. So I think that's also been a differentiator. So I'm, I'll encourage anyone to reach out to me directly and, you know, you'll get a response where, um, you know, that, that, that's a big deal for us. So we're, we're here to help. We're here to solve the problems. Yeah. 
Well, fantastic. Hey, Josh, thanks for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this. I, I really appreciate you having me on, Hugh. This is a really neat podcast to do. Thanks, Josh. Mm-hmm.